Thank you, Adam. So glad we all get to be together this morning. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to jump right back into our walk through the book of Galatians this morning. And it's just uh, such a great weekend. I hope you've already enjoyed some time with friends. And if you haven't yet, I hope you'll get to either today or tomorrow as we get a little break from our normal routine. I tell you, this is a fun time of year for a lot of reasons. How many of y'all are enjoying right now? I, I, I don't, y'all, y'all know me very much. I'm not going to ever make much of sports scores, but my goodness, we can all agree that we just love watching the Braves, don't we? And so I won't talk about the differences that might divide us all up, but this is something that all of us can agree on, right? And uh, I'm just excited about it. It's just a fun time. Well, I, I tell you, in the midst of it all, I've been fascinated by just listening to how former Braves are just talking about the fun times that they once shared. It's just fun to listen to them reminisce. And recently, Bally Sports started doing this very unique thing in bringing together a bunch of the Atlanta Braves who played together for a number of years but have since retired. Now, they're great players, players like Tom Glavin, who won more ball games than just about anybody, and John Smoltz, who can, man, he can throw the ball so hard, and, and Chipper Jones, these great Braves that we all have watched and loved to pay attention to. And what Bally has done, every so often, they bring all these guys together for the game, but they don't even worry about play-by-play. The game is showing, it's unique, it's something I've never seen before. But they don't even talk about the count of the strikes and the balls, how many outs there might be, who might have just... They don't even talk about those things. They just talk about what it was like to be together. And they just pick up as if they have never missed a beat with each other. They enjoyed being together. And I heard Tom Glavin explaining why they're enjoying this so much. He said, it's, it's incredible. When you stop playing, he said, I missed the game but as much as anything else, I miss the locker room. I miss the bantering with my friends. I miss the time that we would share. And he said, I'm so enjoying what Bally has done in bringing this all together. Because whenever we get on air, he said, we pick up as if we never lost any time together at all. Isn't it just something that is enjoyable to watch people who share deep relationship together just enjoy conversing and being together. I tell you, when I think about that, one of the most beautiful findings in the book of Genesis is that it does not take you long before you encounter a theology for fellowship. In chapter 1, if you begin to read, when God made the heavens and the earth, God created everything, the universe, the world, and everything that is in it. And then when you come to chapter 2, after explaining how God made the world in seven days, literal days of creation, you come to chapter 2, and what you read is the emphasis of what happened on that sixth day, the day that God made man in his own image. And when you bring in the focus of chapter 2, what you find is this incredible focus on the importance of of our need for human relationships. So if you decided to go to the Bible and just think, I wonder what the Bible teaches me about fellowship, about my relationships with others, you might have to read it for about six minutes before you would get to Genesis chapter 2. And when you get there, you discover Adam, 
the first man in chapter 2, he's got plenty to do. God has positioned him in a place of perfect and absolute paradise. But even in that place, something is missing. The first recognition of something of creation that is not good. The Bible says it's not good that he is alone. And I love the way that Tim Keller explains as he writes that God created people with an intense need to share life with each other. And that need, which is at the core of God's design, even as you read of it in Genesis 2, it's not fully satisfied by the vertical relationship that we share with God. So even in paradise, loneliness is a terrible thing, but God does not leave that first human being in this hapless condition. And God gives, in Genesis 2, Eve and Adam to each other so that they would enjoy sharing this life together. From our beginning, we learn something about humanity that is striking. God made us in such a way that relationships with others give us greater satisfaction than anything that money could ever buy. So now let's fast forward to the New Testament. Because then you encounter the fact that fellowship, as God intends for us to experience it, becomes possible when two people share a common vision and a common passion. And two people, they may be separated miles apart from, by different things in their background and their experience. They may be far apart in their different social classes or in their ethnicity or in their temperaments or in their culture or even in whatever they find joy in doing, their secondary interests. But if these two people, though they may not have any of these things shared, if they are both Christians, if they both look unto Christ and they're seeking to share life together in Jesus, they have a commonality that is, as Keller explains, is even more indestructible than steel cable. And this kind of fellowship, it saturates Galatians chapter 2 this morning. Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, it says in chapter 2, and he is accompanied by two of his closest friends, two of the people of whom he shares deep fellowship with. First you read in Galatians chapter 2 verse 1 about Barnabas, this true brother, which is referenced in Acts chapter 4, the name Barnabas, this man, literally, his name literally means son of encouragement. What a name. I remember in a time in my life in high school that I needed to be encouraged. Someone would anonymously send me letters to spur me on with my walk in Jesus. And he would always sign the letter, not with his name, but he would sign his name, Brother Barnabas. And the reason he did so is because of the role of Barnabas in the book of Acts. This true son of encouragement played such a key role. He was a person of great integrity. Unlike in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira said they would sell their field and give all the proceeds to the church. Well, Barnabas, in the previous chapter, he actually did it. 
He had property that he sold, and he gave all of the proceeds to the people of God. And then you read about what he did in Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Right after the Apostle Paul's conversion, right after he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, it is Barnabas who believes him, when I'm sure no one else would, or they were even probably scared to, Barnabas believed that he truly had been converted and come to Jesus and affirmed him and would vouch for him with the other apostles. You read of him also in Acts chapter 11. And when you do, you encounter Barnabas and you find out that he was a man who gave no room in his life for even an ounce of jealousy. Because in Acts chapter 11... When God started to work and save Gentiles in Antioch, and Barnabas heard about it and went there to see what God was doing, what he saw filled his heart with such joy, he decided what he needed to do more than anything else would be to go to Tarsus and find the Apostle Paul because these new believers in this place of Antioch, they needed to be discipled by Paul. And he knew when he reached out to Paul that he would then play a second place position where Paul would take center stage. I love the way that Spurgeon used to write about Barnabas. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the fiddle, to play the second fiddle well. That was Barnabas. A perfect description of him. And when Paul came along, he and Paul's hearts were molded together in the crucible of gospel ministry. And Barnabas was glad to take the second chair so that Paul could be used mightily by the Lord. So you encounter Barnabas when you come to Galatians chapter 2. But you also encounter another friend of whom Paul shared deep fellowship with. A man by the name of Titus. Now when you read your New Testament, you remember that Titus is the name of one of the pastoral epistles. There's a letter that Paul wrote with the title Titus on it. And when you study Titus's life, you don't find him in the book of Acts, but you do find him in other places. And when Paul refers to Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 4, he calls him a true son in our common faith. Now Titus, we learn from Genesis 2, was a Gentile, and he was one who was probably one to faith by the Apostle Paul's witness himself. And as you read the New Testament develop, Titus was one of the Apostle Paul's most trusted co-workers in the work of the ministry. Titus is one who, though he's not mentioned in Acts, we do learn he plays a very vital role in the early church. He had a very practical job. He was the one who administrated the love offering that Paul collected when he would go to Gentile churches and would collect for the needs of the, those who were suffering due to famine back in Jerusalem and those who were, who were suffering from not having any of the resources they needed, the poor saints in Jerusalem. Titus was the one who oversaw the administration of that offering, made sure that the money went to where it needed to go, so he was deeply trusted by Paul and by just about everyone else. So you have this band of these three faithful missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and Titus. They're traveling together in full service to what God has called them to do. And in that place of deep abiding, gospel-rich fellowship, which you find 
or principles in this text that I hope will pique your interest because they will bring an end to loneliness in your life. Read about them with me in Galatians 2, the opening 10 verses. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, makes no difference to me. God knows shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Here's what I want you to think about when you consider the truths that we're going to unpack in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The gospel is the soil out of which lasting fellowship can thrive and grow. When you have the gospel rooting your fellowship together, when you have the gospel binding your hearts and knitting them with each other, you have something that is incomparable to anything else that is out there that will ensure that you can have fellowship with other people. Now when you open up Genesis, or Galatians chapter 2, the first thing that you learn about is the need for true fellowship. Chapter 2 opens with this hint of ambiguity. You don't know when he says that after 14 years he went again to Jerusalem, if that 14 years is the 14 years that started from the moment of his conversion, or if he's pointing back, as we read in Galatians chapter 1, to what happened after he had gotten saved, and three years later he went to Jerusalem, Maybe he's pointing back to that event that happened three years after his conversion. And since then, it's been 14 years. So we really don't know exactly how long it's been, 14 or 17 years. But whatever conclusion you reach, it really doesn't change the meaning of the text. God led Paul and his two mentioned friends to make what was his second trip to Jerusalem since he had become a Christian. And he had done so, according to verse 1, by giving Paul and these friends direct revelation. Now, I believe he was called there because, according to Acts chapter 11, he had in, collected an offering that he needed to share with suffering believers that were in Jerusalem. There was an awful famine in Jerusalem. 
People were suffering from tremendous persecution. And Paul had an offering that he had collected through his ministry that I think was going to be given to them out of relief and benefit for them in their really difficult situation. But there's another important reason for their visit. And as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, now as a believer, for only the second time, he hasn't been there for 14 years, he took the occasion to meet privately with influential leaders of the early church. We don't learn until we get down into chapter 7 who these leaders were. They're later called pillars. We know just a few verses down that these leaders were James, which we've already encountered earlier in the first trip that he made to Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, Cephas, who is Peter, and also Jesus' most beloved disciple, John. Don't conclude from this text that Paul had lost his confidence in the gospel that he had been preaching now for well over a decade. Don't think that he needs to go to them because he wants to meet with them to build up his confidence again, to be encouraged by them so that then he'll be able to to just continue on preaching, trusting that what he's preaching is the right thing. I don't think Paul has any doubt in his mind that he's preaching a true gospel. If you remember from Galatians 1, the gospel that he's preaching isn't something that he has created or concocted. This is the message that has come to him from God himself. And he trusts that to be true. God is the one who has given Paul the gospel. So regardless of what these apostles might have told him, he's trusting that this is true. He's going to keep on preaching. But he goes to them for this very practical, strategic reason. For Paul and the apostles to agree on the gospel of which he is preaching, the strength of that agreement, the strength of that fellowship in the ministry, will strengthen the cause of the gospel, not just in Jerusalem, but all the way around the world. He's acknowledging in this text that he is always better off not working by himself, but working in concert with others of whom he shares fellowship with. Aren't you thankful that that is true for us even now? When you think about the joy that we have in sharing the gospel and working out, doing the work of the gospel with people all over the world, not just confined to the fellowship of our church, but other churches all over the place. When I think of this relationship, I think of our dear sister who's over serving in Africa right now that we're praying intensely for. I'd mention her name, but I can't because I want to protect her name so it's not flagged in any way that would hurt her. But boy, I'm so thankful for her. You're going to get to see her in November when she's here. And if you have already met her, I'm sure you have. Every single time we get to be around her, it's just like a drink of cold water. It's such a joy to be able to be with her. And when I think of this particular missionary, can I just tell you, I am so proud that she's ours, aren't you? I'm so thankful that she came from our church. I'm so thankful that her relationship has only deepened as the decades have progressed. But you know what I'm also thankful for? I'm thankful that I get to share her with 50,000 other Southern Baptist churches that we all get to work together in the work of the gospel in supporting our dear friend. 
We would do all we could if it was left just up to us to take care of us. But we get the joy of working with thousands of other churches cooperatively in the work of the gospel all over the world. And there's just a beautiful benefit that that brings. That practical reality is what's driving Paul. He goes to these apostles, these leaders, and he shares fellowship with them as they work together to further the cause of the gospel all around the world. This is the need for true fellowship. It's so that we can join with others in this gospel work, bringing eternal life to people who so deeply need it. But as we keep going through Galatians 2, along with the need for true fellowship, there is a threat to true fellowship. And Paul has to address that threat in verses 3 through 5. A serious theological crisis has developed in the churches in Galatia. And even the way that Paul writes of these verses lets you know that this is deeply concerning to him. These verses are written with emotional choppiness in the original language. In fact, one scholar, J.B. Lightfoot, calls verses 3, 4, and 5 a shipwreck of grammar. Verse 4 doesn't even possess, if you read it, a subject or even a verb in its original language. And the broken syntax of these verses shows you just how deeply stressed and under duress that Paul was when he wrote these verses. So basically, when you read verses 3 through 5, this is what you have. The brotherhood of Paul and Barnabas and Titus is being challenged by those who are referred to in verse 4 as being false brothers. And these are the false teachers that Galatians has already addressed. These Judaizers who Paul is writing to the church to protect the church against. These who want to say, yes, Jesus matters, but it's Jesus plus living according to the Jewish law. Jesus plus being circumcised if you have not been circumcised so that you can be accepted by God. And these false teachers who are adding to the gospel are are infiltrating the ranks of the church. They're making their way into the church like little sugar ants. Those wretched little creatures. Don't you hate them? When they get into your house and they find their way in in the most smallest of crevices. And that's the effect that these false professors, these false brothers are having on this church. As they're professing Jesus as Savior But they're not looking to the finished work of Jesus being that which is necessary for salvation. They're looking for something more. And they're insisting, according to what we read in these verses, that Titus, this Gentile believer who is red hot in his service to the Lord, needed to be circumcised if he was going to be treated of and looked to as a true Christian. So do you see what they're doing? They're claiming a gospel But they're claiming a gospel that must also include these works, this circumcision. And whenever, church, you add anything of our own works to the message of the gospel, you have no gospel at all. All it would have taken for Paul to get these folks off of his back would be to have sat down Titus and said, Titus, go ahead. Go ahead and be circumcised. Fulfill their wishes so we can just get on with life. But if you notice what we read in these verses, he refuses to do such a thing. He's not going to bow to them. 
And even though him doing so might have given some kind of appearance of superficial outer peace, there's a reason why he has to take his stand. Martin Luther explains it in the text I'm about to read. There's a reason why when it comes to the matters of the gospel, we need to remember to always hold out a sanctified stubbornness when it comes to the message of the gospel. This is what Luther said. For the issue before us is grave and vital. That's why Paul takes his stand here. Because it involves the death of the Son of God, who by the will and the command of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. Then it is only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for He has not lived up to His promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. Because if we lose this, we lose God, Christ, all the promises, faith, righteousness, and eternal life. This is why he had to take his stand. These false brothers were trying to lead people back into slavery. He had to stand upon the gospel because when you lose the gospel, you lose everything. Now this has to do with circumcision. And if you look at 2023 and the situation we face, it's probably true that we might not have many calling and requiring circumcision today like these Judaizers did. How do we really understand this in today's world? We might not be insisting on circumcision, but there's just something in human beings, sometimes even in our sincerity, that if we're not careful, we can pull ourselves off on the gospel and add other things to it, thinking that in some way that's going to affirm the fact that we're pleasing God. So there are some who believe that if you go through the works of Jesus plus you add to it, the mass. you got to do these things to be saved. Other people believe that it must be that you accept Jesus and then in order to become saved, you got to pass through water baptism if you're going to be a Christian. There's all kinds of different things people hold to. Some people say you got to believe in Jesus, but make sure that you earn your way to heaven by constantly committing your life to good works. Others believe in charismatic circles. That yes, believe in Jesus, but you've got to have the second blessing and this experience if you're going to become a true Christian. And what we learn from Galatians is don't mingle anything with Jesus' finished work. You can't ground anything of our acceptance of God on anything but what Jesus has done. Remember the words to the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood in his righteousness. So the need of fellowship is there for the furthering of the gospel. The threat to fellowship is confusing the gospel and losing it. But then you have the substance of true fellowship. And that is seen as you pick up in verse 6. When you come to verse 6, this train wreck of grammar... Paul settles back down. He's addressed these false brothers. So he gets back to what he's there for. The grammar in verse 6, it 
goes back to its expected form. And what we learn then is that God has entrusted the gospel to Paul and given him a very specific calling. It talks about the difference of the calling that Paul has and these leaders of Jerusalem of great esteem, these influential leaders that he's writing about, these who he calls the pillars of the church. He's got a particular calling that is much the same as their calling. It's furthering the kingdom, but it's a very specific calling. You see, Paul is the one who's been entrusted with the gospel to reach the Gentiles, those who are uncircumcised. And it is Peter and John and James, they're the ones who continue in preaching the gospel. It's the same gospel, but they're focused on the circumcised. Now when you read this, don't think he's getting turfish here. It's not as if what he's saying there in these verses is from now on out, Paul's the only one who's allowed to share the gospel with Gentiles. And Peter and James and John, they're only going to share the gospel with the Jewish people who live in Jerusalem. If you read out the book of Acts, when the gospel penetrates into the Gentile world, God uses Peter to be the one to do it with the vision that Cornelius is given as Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius and his whole household in Acts chapter 10. That was Peter. So don't think of this as this rigid, turfish weirdness. That only one can do one and only the other can do the other. Wherever Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he starts in the synagogue almost every time in the new city. Sharing the gospel with Jewish people who go to worship in that synagogue. But as a whole, what you read about then in the book of Acts is as Acts develops from the church of Antioch and the commissioning of the first missionary journeys of, of, of Paul and Barnabas, what you have throughout the remainder of the book of Acts is a focus on Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And the focus shifts as Peter, he is silenced from the scene, and Paul takes center stage for the latter half of the book of Acts as the early church has begun. So you have all of them working together in a very particular way. So Paul is there with Titus, a Gentile. He is the missionary to the Gentiles. Peter is the missionary to the Jews. But in all of this, always remember this to be true. While they have different mission fields, they're preaching the same gospel. It's always the same gospel. The gospel that you would hear from Jesus' most beloved disciple, John. The gospel that was spoken off the lips of Jesus' brother, James. The gospel that Peter preaches. The gospel that Paul preaches. The gospel that Titus preaches. The gospel that Barnabas would preach. It's all the same gospel. But they have different callings to work together to spread that gospel throughout the world. So the substance of true fellowship is this gospel that they share. And when these pillars, James, Cephas, and John, after they meet with Paul, it says in verse 9, they see that the Holy Spirit is all over the man. They perceive the grace that's been given to him to take the gospel to the Gentile nations. Do you see what they offer him? The right hand of fellowship is offered to Barnabas and to Paul that they would go to the Gentiles while James and Cephas and John take the gospel to the circumcised. All of their fellowship, the substance of it, is grounded in the gospel that they share. 
And then you find in verse 10 the request that these pillars, James and Peter and John, make of Paul and Barnabas and Titus. As you go out sharing the gospel, remember the poor. And Paul says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. There were so many who were in deep need back in the city of Jerusalem. The mother church where the day of Pentecost happened, where it all started. And God's people had been hit hard with all kinds of things throughout the years. Overpopulation and war and famine. You read about it, the prophet Agabus and what he declared to be true in Acts chapter 11. The famine that was coming. It's the reason why Paul would go around to these Gentile churches in Macedonia and in the area of Galatia and all over in his missionary journeys, taking up a collection and offering to be able to distribute that offering to believers in Jerusalem who needed it. And these pillars, as they're watching Paul go out, they're not demanding that he take up this offering for their benefit, but he shares their need with him. Their need for this love offering to be collected, that Titus would oversee. And Paul was eager to meet that need because when you find fellowship grounded in the gospel, you're not just thinking about the eternal needs of people, you're wanting to take care of them and their everyday needs also. His heart was captivated by the holistic need to go to people who needed it and take that money to the Jerusalem church and care for them too. Do you see how that would just bring beautiful unity between the Jews and the Gentile believers? For Paul to go to these Gentile believers who are also believing Jesus to be the Savior, taking up a collection as they were giving generously. He was, they were giving so much that he'd have to tell them to stop. And they would take that resource back to the Jerusalem church and love them and care for them and give that to them. Imagine the scene when it tells us in the book of Acts, Paul was ravaging these believers in Jerusalem to go back to these families that he's now ministering to with this gift, with tears in his eyes, weeping over what had happened before he became a believer, but now to care for them and to meet their needs. And that's what you have right here at the end of Galatians. They made this request to care for the poor, and Paul was eager to do it. Because the gospel was shaping everything about his life and his ministry. I tell you, when you have friendship and fellowship grounded in the gospel, it just changes everything. And in this text, you see the need for it. You see the threat to it. You see how it all comes together in the gospel. And you see the fruit that happens. When we all come together in Christ, wanting to be on mission with Him. I tell you, this is the kind of friendship that we so deeply need. How'd y'all feel about the awful storms that came through this week? Did you have anything happen at your house? Thankfully, nothing happened to mine. I had some, I was talking to some friends yesterday. Their basement got flooded. That awful rain came through, flooded everything in their basement. They never happened before this week. I didn't have anything awful like that happen, but I woke up the next morning, and you know it was true? I had this 40-foot limb laying across the yard, front yard. Now, 
it did not come from a tree in my front yard because I don't have a tree in my front yard. And my neighbor, he texted me when he saw that limb cut up on the side of the road waiting for the yard people to come and get it eventually. And he texted me to say, I'm so sorry you had to do that. I said, you're such a good neighbor. Thanks for, but it fell in my yard, so I picked it up. I would have done that anyway. Thank you for thinking of me. And I've got this cut up limb with all of these green leaves sitting in these seven foot sections right next to my driveway. Well, that happened early in the week. And every time I pass that limb, those leaves are withering a little bit more. They're turning brown. And they're not going to make it very much longer because they've been cut off. They've been cut up. Nothing's feeding them. You wouldn't expect anything different, would you? But when that branch finds its way into the life of the tree before it was cut off, man, everything on that branch was able to thrive. And I share that with you to say, listen, what will always be the source of strength for every believer in the Lord Jesus is to find the fellowship anchored into the life-giving friendship that we find in Jesus. And as long as we're found in Him, There'll always be the nourishment that we need for our friendships to thrive. For everything we need. We can be separated by all kinds of differences. But when we find our commonality in Jesus, we find a bond that's stronger than anything this world has to offer. But not only do we benefit from it, the gospel thrives as a result. So there's a need for this fellowship. It is threatened often. But as we find the substance of our fellowship in the gospel of Jesus, we even find the fruit that we care for everyone around us. And we want to meet their needs too. Don't you love what we find in Christ? I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And as we just have this time in which we just think about the beauty of fellowship that we find in Jesus, I just invite you to look at the beauty that we find in these verses. The relationship that Paul and Barnabas and Titus and these believers in Jerusalem shared. The sincerity of their care for those who are in deep need to take to them a love offering to meet the needs of the poor. Don't you see the power that's found in the gospel when God gives us this kind of fellowship that's only found in Him? God didn't make us to be alone. He created us with an intense longing to find fellowship with one another. And when you're trying to wonder, well, what in the world does that look like? How do I find it? It is always found and anchored to the gospel of Jesus. There is nothing that this world has to offer that even comes close to compare. So let's just pray for that as a church. Let's pray that we will stay sanctified stubbornly committed to the gospel of Jesus because we know that's where our source will always be found. That's where our fellowship will always be grounded as we stayed anchored to the gospel of Jesus. If you're here today and you're just tired of feeling like you're lonely, I just pray that 
You'll find brothers and sisters in Christ who will encourage you and lift you up and be there for you within our church. We just long for the love of Christ to overtake us and for that to be poured out through our lives into the lives of others. Father, I pray that that is the anchor of all of our fellowship. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.